Welcome to Get Down to College Business. We will identify strategies that could make the difference between keeping university doors open and closing them for good. I'm pulling in business experts and higher ed leaders to debate the merits of strategies that could save the future of higher ed. I'm your host, Sarah Holton, PhD. Let's get down to college business. Hi, everyone. This is Sarah Holton and your host. I'm joined today by Laura Striggins, the Vice President for Planning and Facilities, and she's also the University Architect at Marquette University. She's a trained architect and urban planner, and she was recruited to Marquette from a corporate job for her very specific skill set. She's able to think long-term about how a campus should be developed physically as an outgrowth of the strategic priorities of the university. So, Laura, welcome. Thank you for having me. Laura, you've been at Marquette since 2014, right? And in that time, you've contributed to an almost unheard number of capital projects. You've overseen more than $300 million in capital projects in less than 10 years. That does not happen without a whole lot of planning and oversight. And so I can't wait for our audience to learn your secrets of planning and how to make the physical campus bring a return on investment and build intentional connections with the larger community. Laura, let's start with the process of campus master planning. Walk us through the high-level steps of strategic planning that you use at Marquette and tell us how they sort of evolve into the physical campus environment. So when I arrived at Marquette University, we had a president who had been in place for less than a year. He inherited a previous strategic plan, which had some broad themes associated with it, but we hadn't done a fully comprehensive master plan on that campus in several years. Really, the previous master plans were about improving the physical campus, showed some building locations, but didn't look at all the components that could go into master planning. So we were able to be in a unique position in that particular case to take the broad themes of the strategic plan and launch a comprehensive master planning process for the campus that took those themes and asked the campus community to consider how that could translate into changes in our physical environment, how we could help advance some of the research and academic goals for the institution, and how that could all manifest itself in a physical plan. And I think that in that case, some of what we did in the campus master plan actually helped put some meat on the bones with the strategic plan. We're now in a different stage where we're refreshing our strategic plan and we're going to update our master plan following that. So I think institutions approach that in different ways, whether you have the strategic plan fully in place or you have the master plan lead. I think that ideally you want to see some strategy at the forefront, but I think there's never a time when you're not planning. So you're always trying to think about how you can weave those things together so that the master plan is acting in service of the strategy. It just sounds big to me. It sounds like you have to work with literally everyone on campus to make this come to fruition. So I'm a little bit in awe of, you talked about these components of a master plan, and I'm going to try and get my head around this. Let's start with the key stakeholders. Who do you invite into those early conversations, whether they're internal stakeholders, external stakeholders? How do you kind of get through these early conversations to make progress towards those? You talked about the key themes and stuff. Tell us how that works. I'd first say that's one of my favorite things about what I do. I come at planning and strategy from a creative background. And as an architect, when I was in private practice, a lot of the design and planning process is built on collaboration, stakeholder engagement. So that's really how I've built My approach to strategic planning, master planning is how do you engage people in a meaningful way? And so I think that 
beginning part where you're identifying the key stakeholders and you're bringing them into the fold and thinking about not just what general questions we can ask, but what are the questions that we can ask where people can feel like they're really having an impact. And then as we move forward with the planning process, how can you reflect back what you've heard from those people and share how their input and their experiences have actually made a difference in how the plan manifests itself? So in terms of a strategy for engaging campus stakeholders in the process, I think that I really started with trying to meet many different people on campus, understand what the landscape was, what was the culture around planning, who had been engaged before, who maybe hadn't ever been engaged and wanted that opportunity. And I think that was how we developed a process at Marquette and then also with previous institutions I've worked with to craft a stakeholder engagement process that was unique to the institution, but worked for where they were in their journey in planning and strategy. I think that's one of the most important benefits of planning is not the product at the end of the day, but the process and the ability to build a culture that's comfortable talking about big ideas, comfortable testing things out and seeing where they go. Let's break it down between external and internal stakeholders. Who are the must-haves in that external group and who are the must-haves in the internal group? Who becomes your thought partners, your champions, your key collaborators? Mm -hmm. I think when you're talking about external partners, you know, there's people that are maybe if you think about it, like concentric rings, there's people that are maybe one step removed from being part of the, the daily work of the university. Those might be board members. Those might be key donors. Those are people that you frequently see engaged in some part of the process or providing some sort of feedback and input as you roll out some key themes or other things. But beyond that, particularly at the institution that I'm at, Marquette University, you know, we're a Catholic Jesuit university located in the heart of downtown Milwaukee. And so our relationship to the community is of utmost importance to us. So engaging some of our nearby community partners, like the near West Side partners, Menominee Valley, the West Town District, was critically important to us. Also looking at who some of our corporate and other philanthropic types of partners were people that we've done research efforts with or people that we have academic partnerships or student engagement partnerships with and bringing them into the process, not to drive the plan so much, but to inform us and say, what else aren't we thinking about? How could we partner with you better? As well as all of those partners have lessons learned from their own companies, from their own organizations that we want to get those best ideas and use them. So I think that I look at the external engagement piece as kind of this series of rings and then tailor what are the types of questions we're asking, how are we engaging them to where they sit within sort of that that circular structure. And then in terms of internal engagement, I think it's somewhat similar. And I'm a huge proponent of asking people questions where they can have an impact on the outcome. So I am always trying to think about how can we ask questions that are appropriate and meaningful to the people we're engaging. I think that's a really wise way to go about it. It sounds like it's almost like you're trying to achieve consensus, not just collaboration, but really consider what their input will you know, manifest itself within that physical environment. So 
as you mentioned, Marquette's in the middle of Milwaukee, and it's kind of situated a little bit west of downtown. I did my doctoral degree there in the 2000s. And even since then, so even in the last dozen years or so, I've noticed a huge physical transformation in that neighborhood. And Marquette's reach sort of continues to extend outward a little bit west, a little bit north. It's very much an urban community. Tell us from your perspective about the benefits and the connections to the larger community that happens when you have an urban institution. And what does that kind of do for the community? And maybe even talk about some challenges, too, if there are any. Sure. I think that's one of the most special things about Marquette. And honestly, one of the things that drew me to join Marquette is the opportunity to make a difference not only on the campus, but in the Milwaukee community. And that was part of the vision that Dr. Lovell, our president, articulated to me when he recruited me to Marquette. And, you know, if you look at what has happened on the near west side of Milwaukee and around Marquette, a lot of that great work can be attributed to some of these wonderful community organizations like the Near West Side Partners, Menominee Valley Partners, but also to the organizations that have acted as catalysts and supporters. And Marquette is one of those. There's several other partners that are in Menominee Valley, in the Near West Side, in the West Side of downtown that have been able to do that. And I think that it's been really inspiring to see those organizations work together to understand that it's not just about their footprint, but about how their footprint extends into the greater community. And like you said, you know, being in an urban area, you know, it's not without its challenges. Those are things that we still have to work on. I think that the city and the nearby community and Marquette and other institutions are really committed to continuing to make strides to improve that. I think that, you know, Marquette, for example, is not an institution with walls or gates. And I've certainly been asked that question in my time at Marquette. Should, you know, should we have a walled or gated campus? We're intentionally open. That's part of our mission. It's part of our Catholic Jesuit roots to be open and engaged with our urban community. That also means understanding and working within the context of everything that comes with being in an urban environment. And so I think that it's always trying to strike that right balance between everything we want to do to keep our campus safe and welcoming and engaging and provide the best experience for the students, but also with a recognition that it's part of our mission to be in this urban environment and engage with our community. You know, it's interesting that you bring that out. The absence of walls or gates is actually supposed to send an intentional message about being connected to the larger community. And I hadn't really thought of it that way before. I mean, it just never occurred to me to think about that. But you're right. There's plenty of campuses out there that if they were in similar urban environments, they might find ways to I guess, put up a wall or a gate or keep it a little more closed off in some way. And so that's interesting. That's a very intentional symbolic gesture towards being open to the community. Okay, we talked a lot about the process, collaboration. Let's turn to some of the more tactical or functional pieces of your job. So every functional unit on campus they've got the most important needs, right? Their priorities are top of the thing, and it should be, and I'm sure you hear that from everyone. So whether it's the health and wellness area, athletics, dorms, academic buildings, venue space, study space, whatever, I'm sure the list is endless. How do you 
balance those competing priorities because they're all important. But at the end of the day, there is only so much money to go around. So you do have to make some tough decisions. So how do you balance those competing priorities? And based on your experience, are there particular imperatives that usually rise to the top? So the competing priorities is a commonality throughout higher education. I think you see that anywhere you go. Institutions talk about it at conferences really frequently. And there's always more that institutions desire to do than what they can do in any given time. And that's even when you just think about new buildings and don't even consider the fact that campuses have aging facilities with a huge backlog of deferred maintenance and other things that they also have to fund. So that's always a challenge. And I think the best we can do when we think about how to prioritize is to put some rigor around how we make our decisions. And that can be a challenge because you're always going to have within an institutional setting donors that want to fund a specific thing or a need that comes about because something happened, a huge research grant got funded, or there's a a huge deferred maintenance need and a building is falling apart. But I think that thoughtful planning that's continuous and integrated where it takes into account, okay, what are the academic growth goals and research growth goals? Where are we at from an operations standpoint, talking closely with facilities, IT, security to understand where are those pain points and where are the investments required there, as well as working with like our advancement team who handles our fundraising and donor engagement to understand, okay, what's that landscape looking like? And using all of those points to help inform how we might move things forward. And then it's a matter of a number of things coming together. It's the programming and the ability to make the case for why we need new or different or improved space. It's the funding. So whether that's donor funding, university funding, or other resources, and then it's the ability to execute it within a time frame. It's the readiness, right? So I think it's all three of those things that have to come together in order to make decisions. That being said, when you say, are there things that that rise to the top? I mean, there's an exception to every rule, right? And I've seen lots of those in my time, not just at Marquette, but at other places. And part of it is just the ability to be nimble and agile and to know that you can pivot. So I think one of the strengths of our master plan at Marquette, for example, is it was designed knowing that we couldn't be certain about exactly what priority would come next, but to have the ability within what we set out in the plan to flex and adapt as things emerged. That's really interesting. I actually really like that idea about staying open to the ambiguous. Like we don't actually know because by the time you actually put things in place, it's one, two, three years later. And so building in flexibility, I think is really good. I was reading something the other day about the difference between certainty and confidence. And I think that's an important distinction in planning, both strategic planning and master planning is you can't always, you can't be a hundred percent certain that the plan that you have is exactly how can be executed the way you thought. But what you're trying to do is build confidence that you have a plan that will be able to, to get you through the different challenges and the different opportunities that emerge. You mentioned earlier the idea of putting some rigor behind your decision-making process. 
Tell me about the role of technology. Are you using, you know, tracking systems for usage of buildings or other types of technology to help drive your decisions? I think that this is an area where some institutions across the country have made some really great strides in how they track and manage things like space utilization data, deferred maintenance backlog tracking and things like that. We use some of those tools. I think that one of the things we evaluate when we consider what tools we use and technology we use around managing things like that is how much effort goes into the use of that technology versus the gain that we'll get on the back end. Could we put sensors in every single office to understand what the space utilization is? Sure. Is that something that we have the staffing to monitor, the ability to act on based on the results? And we make our decisions about those type of investments based on what we know our ability might be to create change based on the results that we'll see. Oh, that's interesting. It's not just, you're not thinking about it just from pure data point. You're saying, okay, but what am I going to do with this? And even if I have this data, how am I going to use it anyway? Is it really going to matter? I think that's interesting. And so do you use any, you said deferred maintenance backlog, do you guys use that kind of thing or space utilization? We do. Our facilities planning and management team does a great job of tracking all of the building deferred maintenance, all the building components, and they grade them and evaluate them. And we go through that review every year when we do our minor capital budgeting. On a space utilization standpoint, we did a study around space utilization of classrooms and conference and meeting rooms and kind of more of the common spaces on campus. And as a result of that, developed a space policy to help guide some of our decisions and things. But again, I think, you know, data is only useful if you do something with it. And so we can generate lots and lots of data. And I oftentimes get requests from other institutions to provide lots of our data so that they can combine it with theirs and look at it. My question is always, how do you plan to use that? And are you really prepared to respond to what the data tells you? (laughs) (laughs) That's such the human element right there, right? Like, okay, but are you actually going to do anything or you just want to say you've collected the data, right? Exactly. Just kind of an offshoot of this topic. Tell me, how have you seen space usage change since COVID? I know we're hearing so much more about people wanting to work hybrid and more collaborative spaces for students and faculty. Have you seen that to be the case? Or can you tell us just from your perspective how you've seen space change since COVID? It's such an interesting question. And I think that the answer to it keeps evolving. And, you know, with many campuses, the question right now is, what does the physical campus look like in the future? And I remember at the beginning of COVID, there were people that were out there saying, we're not going to need a physical campus anymore. And I obviously feel strongly about the value of a physical campus and an in-person experience. And so I, that was always an interesting take for me. But now you you see this continued evolution of how people are thinking about space. So I would say that as an example, we had a unit on campus that coming out of COVID was probably 90% remote work. Their work could be done remotely. Over time, that's evolved. And now they're back, you know, two days a week. They're talking about coming back three days a week. I think what the change is that I'm seeing is the desire for more flexibility in the type of space that people work in. We've now all become comfortable in working in different types of environments. And so what was once I work in my office and that's where I do all my work and that's where I take all my meetings. People are now more, I think, willing and facile at working in different types of environments. So I think that we can introduce some more flexible type of workspace. The other thing I think 
too, is we haven't completely lost the need for private office space, heads down space. And so the pendulum almost swung probably a little bit too far in some instances in thinking everything could be flexible and open. Everything could be this new way when really the answer is there's no one size fits all solution and providing a lot of variety and type is probably the best way to go. All that being said, we have made strides in reducing the size of our private offices in favor of more collaborative and small group meeting spaces on campus. In our recently completed College of Business building, we did that as well as our College of Nursing building, which is under construction right now. The leadership teams in both of those cases were willing to work with us on the planning side to say, okay, if we reduce the scale of the private offices a bit, still give faculty their private space, could we have more collaborative space, more space for the student experience? And I love to see that kind of action. So it sounds like you went about the compromise. And how was that received by the users? I'm assuming this is mostly faculty. How was that received to have a smaller private space, but still retained private space? I think as anyone in higher ed knows, the private faculty office is seen as a form of currency, right? So, you know, taking away faculty offices just was not on the table for us. But I think the conversation about what was the purpose of downsizing the offices a bit, what would we gain and how could that benefit the faculty and how could they work differently? And again, engaging them in that dialogue and that process at the forefront versus just having it something that happens to you at the end, I think was helpful. It's still an adjustment, right? Anytime people move into a new building, it's a culture change. And if you just go into a building, you do things the exact same way you did them when you were in your former space, then you probably didn't need a new building. So the whole point is to think and work differently. So we want to push people a bit outside their comfort zones, but we also want to be realistic in terms of the resources we provide. I think about it, my university, we all fight over the offices with the lake views. Sure. So you have a beautiful <laughs> campus yeah. for that. Right. And so people like jockey, they champion, they do all sorts of things to get the lake view. Yeah. So I do understand offices is currency. Okay. Let's keep going down this vein of like when these strategic decisions, even with some compromises, kind of pay off. Tell me about other types of of decisions that you've made with facilities and planning that uh, into the physical environment that have really just blossomed and paid off? I think where you see the biggest benefit when there's an investment in a new facility for campus or an ex- extensively renovated facility for campus is when the institution thinks through not just the physical building result and the initial capital investment, but really takes the time to think through all of the pieces of the operations, the programming, the people, the culture. And while we have that precious time period where we're planning and designing a new facility, how are we also thinking about the other ways that we want to be different or that we want to transform how we do our work? So I think The successful projects I see in higher ed that do that, where they've thought through the other components so that when they're moving in the building, it's not just a move from one space to another, but we've also thought about how are our programs different? Did we need new positions? Do we need to reorganize ourselves in some way? I think that's when you realize the true value of that investment. The building itself, that cost is, it's, large for an institution, but it's relatively small when you think about the entire spectrum of what really needs to happen around the life cycle of being in that building and operating and using it and being successful for the students that you serve. 
It's interesting. I'm hearing you talking about a symbiotic relationship, right? The building manifests strategy to achieve certain outcomes, and yet the building itself also impacts and influences back how we work and think and study and all of that. I think, you know, the built environment to me, if I look at a building on campus, I'm super fortunate to have worked on all these buildings and transforming campus, but the buildings are really a platform to enact what our strategic plan is, what our vision is for serving our students, what our academic and research goals are. And so the buildings are really there in support of that. And that's where I think sometimes there's an expectation that a building is going to solve something. The building itself doesn't do that. There's actually, there's a famous quote by Jane Jacobs where she says, we expect too much of our buildings and too little of ourselves. And I think that's super true, right? We expect that, oh, if we just had new space, it would solve this. When the reality is we have to be thinking about all, we have a responsibility to think about all those other components as well. Tell me about whether you tie specific metrics to the campus master plan. So do you kind of measure the success of this plan based on particular student outcomes or other types of metrics? We do in some ways. I would say that, for example, we know what the increase in enrollment and applications to the business school were, and we can attribute that probably in part to the introduction of a new facility to campus. You know, we will monitor that on wellness and recreation, our new project that we're working on there as well. We know that relative to nursing. So enrollment is one area where we can make some attribution between the introduction of a facility and the enrollment. We do a number of kind of student surveys and other things, meet with the building stakeholders and others to get some more of that sort of qualitative data around their experience. Because not just to say, look how successful this was, but also because in any new building, you're going to have to make some tweaks. Nothing is perfect on day one. And so we want to get that feedback and understand, you know, what would make this experience even better? What isn't quite working? And we make those adjustments along the way. I think that the other place that we look at data and metrics around it is building performance. So we certainly set goals related to energy efficiency, sustainability, other things like that. And we continue to monitor those on the building as well. And then finally, throughout the design and construction process, we look at, you know, some of our goals related to diverse business inclusion, what our scope, schedule, and budget are, and are able to monitor and report back on those. And I think that's just fiscally responsible to do that. That's socially responsible in terms of what we've said we're trying to do as an institution. Tell me more about the sustainability piece. So as you are designing a new facility, are you focused on carbon neutrality, carbon reduction, other types of sustainability efforts? Can you tell me just a little bit about that? It's a, a great question and very timely because we're in the middle of a sustainability planning initiative on campus. We're in a unique position at Marquette because as a Catholic Jesuit institution, we have the Pope's encyclical Laudato Si, which talks about care for our common home and care for our environment. And so that's how we're framing our sustainability planning. And if I had my sustainability coordinator sitting next to me right now, she'd be saying that, you know, it's not just about environmental sustainability, but it's about all these other aspects. So I think the direction that we're moving as an institution is to really think holistically around sustainability or as we might call it, integral ecology right? Because sustainability gets tagged to lots of different things. But how do we think about all of the different impacts that, in this case, a building might have 
on that ecology around us. And so the approach that we've taken is that we try to make smart decisions for the life cycle of the building and for the users that will inhabit it, but we don't chase specific points or awards or other things. The byproduct of our approach has been that we are able to achieve those things, but we don't make those decisions purely to achieve those standards. I'm really excited we're looking at new types of certifications like FitWell, you know, there's Well Building, there's others that have come into the marketplace beyond LEED. And I think that's introducing a new dialogue around that idea of comprehensive and integral sustainability. Let's pull back a little bit. And in your time at Marquette and even prior to that, tell me about what do you see as the biggest challenges and also maybe the biggest opportunities, which of course we know challenges can turn into opportunities, but like Big picture wise, where from where you sit, campus master planning, what's hard about it? I mean, when you started out and you were saying all the things you had to do and I was I was actually a little bit overwhelmed. I was like, wow, this is a very big job. Well, where, from where you sit, where are the challenges? They're plentiful. <laughs> but I think that, you know, the biggest challenge is probably, like you said, it's getting your head around all of the different aspects you need to be thinking about as you're approaching planning, whether that's the strategic plan or the master plan, and not being overwhelmed by that to a point that you get into a paralysis that you're not making decisions or you're not able to move things forward. So, you know, these are huge opportunities when a university makes an investment in a building or a new academic program or any of these things. These are huge opportunities for institutions. And so it's imperative that we have the ability to think in an integrated way about all the different facets of impact and opportunity that are associated with that, and then come up with an actionable strategy to do that. And I think that's where you really need the partnership between people that are super visionary and create those big ideas and create those big opportunities. And then the people that are more planful and think about, okay, that is a great vision. What are all the pieces we have to think about bringing together to bring it to reality? And I think Institutions that are successful have a good balance of both of those things, but that can be a challenge because it's fun to dream all the time. It's a little harder to actually put all the puzzle pieces together and figure out how to make it happen and make it be sustainably successful over the long haul. Are there any types of projects that you just won't touch, that they come your way? Somebody, Oh, yeah, you're laughing, so that's a yes. So somebody pitches an idea in the middle of a meeting and you're like, oh, no, we're not doing that. Is there anything like that? Maybe it's something that would just take too much debt to fund, buildings without dual purposes or flex space, overbuilding. Just tell us about that. Like, Under what conditions will you say no? I'd hope if my colleagues were sitting next to me right now, they'd say that I don't, I've never done that. They've never heard me do that because I always try to think about, I treat everything that comes to me in that way like, oh, what about this or what about that? as an opportunity to talk about an idea, right? And, you know, maybe the way they're thinking about it isn't quite there yet, or maybe a new building isn't actually the solution, but there might be a kernel of an idea that we could think about another way to achieve it. So I think there's not much in that regard that I would say right away, like hands off, no way. I guess I would say as I think about the future and where academia is headed, you asked the question earlier about office space and post-COVID, I do think on most academic campuses, there is a surplus of office and administrative space on campus. And so I would say that I 
probably look at that with a more critical eye before choosing to act on that. We've really tried to make sure we have a business case and a purpose around projects that we advance. So I think that's, again, the challenge of thinking about not just what do you want, but how does that serve our bigger purpose and mission and goals that we have? Well, now that I know that you don't say no, I have all <laughs> these ideas that I would like to pitch, starting with, you know, alumnus Sarah Holton's podcast booth on campus with like, you know, I'm picturing like floor to ceiling glass and like, you know, very lovely. I'm going to bring our, our producers in. Right. Can we do that? Well, I think this is a great partnership. <laughs> See, and so if I fund it, the yeah. answer is yes. Okay. Well, and I think, but that's another, the, actually the podcast booth is a really great example that I'll share that, you know, on campus when our College of Com has a great podcast booth, great studio and all of these things, when podcasts first became super popularized, everybody wanted a podcast booth, right? And really what we tried to say is what if we locate some podcast booths throughout campus that people can use? We have one in the new business school as well. And how do we make things like that knowable for others around the institution and shareable? And so that's, again, not a no, <laughs> but maybe like another a no. way to look at it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so tell me about a type of school that doesn't maybe have the resources that Marquette does, right? They have you, they have a team, they have a really strong alumni base. What about the schools that maybe don't just don't have those pieces in place. What recommendations would you make for the school that's like, we really have to squeeze every penny and, you know, for what it's worth to maintain our facilities and to do campus planning? What high level recommendations would you make for that group? I think first and foremost, it's, it's your orientation to planning. The value of planning and thinking about consistently thinking about your future and where you're headed is always important. I think it's the matter of scaling and your orientation to how you're approaching planning. You have a different set of parameters that you're thinking about, and that changes for every institution. And even institutions that appear to be more resource-rich oftentimes face many constraints, and those are things that need to be at the forefront of planning. I think there's also the opportunity for smaller institutions to call upon other resources that are external to help with planning efforts if you don't have those type of resources in-house. But I think that it's that the value of the culture of continuously planning and thinking about where you're trying to go within the parameters and sometimes constraints that you have doesn't excuse walking away from thinking about that entirely. You need to keep working on it. So you mentioned pulling in external resources. Are you referring to consultants? Like what would be their role? Are they helpful? And how do you use consultants best? I think consultants are best utilized when someone internally can be a partner to that consultant and work with them. And I can say that having been on both sides of this. I was previously in consulting and now I'm within higher ed. And so I'm in the practice of hiring consultants. And I think that where I see it being most effective is where there's that partnership and someone institutionally who can take the ball and continue to move it down the field and that there's not this very abrupt handoff between consultant work and internal work, but more of a partnership created between the two. And I think that sometimes that looks like a consulting firm. Other times that's an individual that's called in for a period of time to help assist or advise on something. 
Sometimes it can be helping with specific data collection and metrics that you're working around. So I think there's a lot of different ways that can look, and it doesn't have to be an overblown engagement always. It can also be something very specific. So I'm hearing you say consultants work well when you still have that internal kind of person helping to onboard them and work with them and be a thought partner. It's not like, hey, here's my project. Come back at me in three months and give me some results, right? Or you just haven't seen it work that way. I'm an institutional planner, so I'm always going to advocate for planners in-house. But I do think that's a key to success there. Okay. As we're wrapping up here, tell us about your best advice for college leaders to operate a viable institution. It could be related to planning and facilities, or it could be related to anything else. You, you're a VP, so you see all kinds of issues and opportunities come your way. So what's your best advice for college leaders right now? From my perspective, I'd say don't underestimate the value of building a culture around continuously thinking about strategy and planning and building the whole ecosystem around how to execute the big ideas that you have for the institution. I I think that planning and strategy is a balance between leadership at the top and the many, many people that have to be engaged in order to realize it effectively. And so I think that ability to think that through and leverage the great resources that exist throughout many institutions to help realize that is of paramount importance to being successful. Love it. That's great advice. Laura, I would imagine there's going to be some people who want to reach out to you, pick your brain, pull you in for their projects, get you to build their podcast booth me. (laughs) So I will include your LinkedIn and your website information in our show notes. Laura, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. To support the cause of the affordable college experience, visit us at highlevelleadership.com. Read our blog and join our email list to get connected. Follow us and leave a positive review on your favorite podcast app. Let's get down to college business.